The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast. Hang up and listen for the week of November 12th, 2018. On this week's show, the Wall Street Journal's Ben Cohen will join us to discuss the Duke men's basketball team's remarkable freshman class, led by the remarkable Zion Williamson. We'll also talk about what video games have to do with record-setting offenses in the NFL and the NBA. And baseball writer Rob Nyer will be here to discuss the legendary baseball thinker Bill James, who made lots of people mad last week by tweeting that if the players all retired tomorrow, we would replace them and the game would go on. Joining me in our Washington, D.C. studio is the man who replaced Stefan Fatsis, Stefan Fatsis author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. You seem like the old Stefan. You know, Josh, if we both retired right now, there actually would be no podcast. Maybe in like three years there would be a podcast. It would take a while. It would, it would take a minute. Um, before we get cranking here, I would like to bring in Ben Cohen of the Wall Street Journal. He's going to be with us for our first two segments. It would only be polite to mention him in the intro. Uh, welcome, Ben. Thank you for having me and uh, not replacing me yet. Uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, Cody, tell. I wanted to talk about Cody Parkey as like a little uh, banter exercise as as far as uh, people who may or may not be replaced. He had four uprights, the Bears kicker, in the game on Sunday. Uh, thoughts, Stefan? I, oh, I have thoughts on this. Yes, I have thoughts on A, when you try to hit uprights, which football players do in practice, both with their feet and with their arms, it is very hard to do, and it is a very fun game. It is a very entertaining, time-wasting, one-upmanship game during uh, training camp. I'm wondering if he felt very zen on it uh, about it as he was like contemplating whether he was going to lose his job. He's like, wow, if I don't try to hit the upright, I've managed to hit the upright. What do you think, Ben? What are the odds of hitting the uprights four times in a row? Stefan, do you think it's like 1% of the time the kick gets the upright? Or? Probably. Yeah. I mean, how many Point zero touchdowns one to the and field goal attempts are there every weekend? Can someone look that up? How many hit the upright? <laughs> zero yeah, somebody, to one? A listener out there, look that up. Look that up telepathically. Back to us right now. I mean, by someone, I meant either you or Ben. Um, <laughs> it may be less than 1%. So to hit four it's, in a row, that's a, it's, yeah, we're, we're talking a very, 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 very. It seems to be one of the better statistical feats of the last year. I was thinking recently, um, last night actually, um, when it looked like uh, the Houston Rockets and Carmelo Anthony were parting ways about, um, you know, sort of how admirable it was last year that the Rockets went straight at the Warriors and how ironic and rich and kind of hilarious it was that at the exact moment when they built this team to shoot three-pointers to beat the Warriors, they missed 27 straight threes. I mean, 27 straight threes, like it just... I feel like that sort of got um, Mm -hmm. in some ways glossed over because of everything that happened next. But like, you know, between that and uh, hitting the uprights four times in a row, it's been kind of a banner year for strange statistical oddities. I think what what would other examples of hitting the uprights in other sports be? Home runs hitting the foul pole? Well, that would be incredible. I mean, if there were some talk about bringing baseball back to relevance, like if some guy had a a home run streak of hitting foul poles every time in a row, I mean, who wouldn't watch that? Or it could be like a basketball player getting a wedgie like four times in a row. You know the wedgie, Stefan? Mm-hmm. 
just getting the, on the, the court or in the locker room on the court just on getting the, the ball stuck between the rim and the backboard yeah that would be cool i thought you meant the other kind of wedgie uh that Attacked would be less by cool his teammates get ready for the greatest roast of all time the roast of tom brady a netflix live event happening may 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Uh, Let's talk about Duke basketball, which is one of Ben's uh, favorite subjects, being a, a Duke alum. Uh, on Tuesday in Indianapolis, while our defenses were down as a nation, as we were pondering the midterms, Duke's six foot seven, two hundred eighty-five pound freshman slash force of nature Zion Williamson went eleven for thirteen from the floor and scoring twenty-eight points to lead the number four Blue Devils to an absolute annihilation of number two, Kentucky, 118 to 84. He also somehow took like four seats in the North Carolina Supreme Court. I don't know how that <laughs> happened. Uh, Williamson's fellow freshman, R.J. Barrett and Cam Reddish, also scored 33 and 22, respectively, in that game. And on Sunday, in their first game in Durham, North Carolina, Williamson scored 27 to go along with 16 rebounds, six blocks, and four assists in a 94-72 win over an overmatched U.S. military academy. Uh, well, Barrett scored 23 and Reddish scored 25. Um, ben, these guys are ridiculous, which is perhaps to be expected given that they were the top uh, three top-ranked players coming out of high school. But it was actually Barrett who was the consensus number one, which seems kind of comical given that we now have these two data points indicating that Zion Williamson is quite possibly the greatest athlete ever to play basketball, which you would not think was an exaggeration <laughs> if you had seen this enormous man run and especially jump uh, in these last two games. You know, I didn't know you wanted me to talk about Zion Williamson. I thought we were talking about the backup forward Jack White today, but I guess I'll, I'll switch gears and talk about um, Zion instead. I mean, the guy is like a freak of nature. I mean, I, I think anyone who sort of followed Duke basketball um, – and watched um, some of his clips from social media this summer could tell that he was kind of unlike anyone who had ever played college basketball before. But it's one thing to hear that, and it's another thing to see it against Kentucky on the first night of his freshman season. Um, it was kind of remarkable. And, um, you know, I, I, I do think that when you watch him and Barrett and Reddish, like Barrett and Reddish might make more sense as NBA players. Like, it's, it's I, I don't know that, like, you know, these last two games are representative of Zion Williamson's future. But if they are, he might be one of the greatest NBA players of all time. But so, which, which is sort of a little bit why um, I'm dubious that this will, um, you know, continue for the rest of the career, his season at, at like this level. But, you know, Barrett and Reddish are, you know, any team in the country would build an entire team around that. Well, and we, they're we've sort seen, of afterthoughts so far. We've seen Barrett like and Reddish like players before, which I think is what you're getting at, Ben. We've never seen anyone, Stefan, like Zion Williamson. And right. so we just don't believe that it's real. Well, because the comparisons that that writers are making are reasonable on their face. But then you realize that Zion Williamson 
can do much more than Charles Barkley or Larry Johnson or Draymond Green or LeBron James at age 18, um, who was, you know, LeBron James was a lot smaller. I mean, what, Zion Williamson would be the second heaviest player in the NBA now? Behind Boban, yeah. Um, and 6'8", which we don't think of as, you know, huge in the modern NBA, the guy is huge. I mean, and that's just not because he was playing Army on Sunday. <laughs> it's because he's huge. And he, you know, I think his goal for the rest of this season should be to not get hurt, A, so that his value as an NBA player isn't compromised in any way because that's when we're going to really want to watch him. Um, sorry, Duke alumni like <laughs> yourself, um, Ben. But... It's it's the the sort of the, the, when people can't really make a good comparison for a guy, that's when I think it's you sort of accept that we are in strange territory and that the potential for someone like Zion Williamson is so great. Ben, I'm curious for your thoughts on the transition of Duke from this place where Shashevsky, you know, said kind of historically, high-handedly, like, oh, we don't do the one and done thing because we're so great, and you know those other. Schools can do it. We uh, care about leadership and, and ethics, and we don't want these guys who just come around, you know, uh, and, and stay for a year. He's gone completely in the opposite direction now, which we could talk about. But the thing that I find most interesting is like Duke as a brand becoming um, a school that somebody like Zion Williamson or R.J. Barrett or Cam Reddish would want to associate with. Which I think, you know, back when John Wall was was coming out. Um, you know, he said very publicly, like, I didn't want to go to Duke. I wanted to be at Kentucky. Like, do you have any sense of why and how that changed? Um, and do you think that this is like just what Duke is now? Well, I think there are two things that are important. The first is that I think you could probably make the argument that Zion Williamson is the first player who is bigger than the Duke brand, right? He has more followers on social media for whatever, you know, whatever that counts for. But he seems so far to have transcended the college team that he's playing for, yeah, that's a great which point. doesn't tend to happen with college players. In fact, I can't really remember the last time, maybe Trey Young last year. I mean, Trey Young seemed to be at the height of Trey Young mania mm -hmm. in January and February it was bigger than Oklahoma, but Oklahoma is not Duke in basketball. And well, so it's like Jimmer Fredette and Steph Curry, but those are guys at schools that don't really have a brand. That's right. right. And this is one of the top two brands in college basketball, period. That also happens to have the number two and number three pick playing alongside of this guy, right? I mean, um, I, I think that it is, it has been a conscious strategy now for the last decade or so, even for three or four years before they started to get the one and done guys, they were really beginning to recruit those guys. Right. And it was, it was before John Wall. Um, it went back to guys like Greg Monroe and Brandon Wright and even Patrick Patterson, who ended up in Kentucky. I mean, Duke was in the game for all of these guys and they couldn't get it and they couldn't flip that reputation um, that they had among high school players that um, they were not a place where you would want to go for your one or two years in college basketball. Now, um, something happened where they kind of um, uh, embraced, um, they not only embraced all these trends in college basketball, but they tried to put out this image of 
um, this notion of the brotherhood and that they, um, you know, were cool and they had all these glossy highlights online and they really started to play that game. And, and then they got one or two, uh, one and done guys and it sort of had a cascading effect. I mean, the first guy, um, who really, I think took that program to the next level was Kyrie Irving. And the ironic thing about Kyrie Irving was that he was not the man in that class. It was Harrison Barnes and Harrison Barnes um, if you remember, was was sort of seen as um, the prototypical Duke recruit. And he came to Duke and he came to North Carolina and he happened to pick North Carolina in the months after they won the 2009 national championship. What happened after Harrison Barnes committed to North Carolina was that Kyrie Irving committed to Duke. And Kyrie Irving was not the best player in that class. Harrison Barnes was. And it was almost like an afterthought when he committed. And yet he turned out to be maybe the best NBA player that Krzyzewski has had and uh, clearly changed something about the perception of Duke. And from there, they started to get one and dones uh, and they got Austin Rivers and they got Jabari Parker. And suddenly they were in the mix for players like Marvin Bagley last year and Jason Tatum the year before. And that is how you end up with maybe the greatest recruiting class that college basketball has ever seen. At least since the Fab Five. Um, right. In the early 1990s. Um, in order for that to happen, though, this is a, these are deliberate calculations by someone like Mike Krzyzewski. This isn't sort of random, oh, we got Kyrie Irving and it worked out. It's Mike Krzyzewski making a decision to change the nature of the program because he understands that he will not be able to compete with Calipari and Kentucky and other schools that are willing to recruit the players who are most obviously perceived as one-and-done NBA players. And I think you know, that applies to—it's not just like Krzyzewski lowering his, you know, his standards or changing the way he operates. It's just a function of the reality of college sports. I remember having a conversation with North Carolina's women's soccer coach, Anson Dorrance, and he was lamenting how he now had to go out and recruit 10th graders and 9th graders because everybody else was doing it and I really don't want to do it, but I've got no choice. And yeah, he did it because he wanted to remain relevant in the sport. Krzyzewski was in a position where he had to change. Couple, couple comments on that. I think the thing that both of you guys are leaving out that's really key here is that Krzyzewski became the uh, dream team coach. And I think that's actually what made him cool and relevant to a lot of these players is that like he's friends with LeBron and like, you know, he has these relationships with these players. It's like an amazing recruiting tool. Yeah, that's a good point. And if you talk and, and Zion Williamson has said like he was actually starstruck to be texting with Coach K, which is like slightly <laughs> absurd to me. But like it seems sincere like that these players see him and as I'm sure they see Calipari as like a celebrity and that that's certainly an important part of the wooing process. Well, and a celebrity who can get them to where they need to be, which is in the top five of the NBA draft the following season. Yeah. The second thing I would say is that I'm not actually sure you do need to recruit these guys to compete. It's just a different strategy. Like Duke won the national championship when their leading scorer was Kyle Singler. Their top rebounder was Brian Zubek, and their leading assist guy was John Shire. Like, they beat Butler. This was, like, in 2010. This wasn't, like, ancient history. Mm -hmm. So I think that there is a universe in which Duke could compete, and it's not like Kentucky is winning the national title every year. So it's, it's a different approach, and I think it's one that Duke actually didn't 
necessarily have to go with in order to still be relevant in college basketball? Well, it's a question of do you want the best talent every year, right? Or are you going to come up with some kind of strategy that can uh, overcome teams that might have more raw talent and athleticism than you have? And that 2010 team was a very strange team and seems like uh, a relic of ancient history at this point. But it was, you know, a lot of those players on that team were not NBA talents, but they were five-star recruits coming out of high school. And that team was you know, in, in Ken Pomeroy's rankings was um, kind of uh, dominant all season long, even though they never really looked it. And it was kind of around the time when college basketball was uh, realizing that they should pay attention to advanced statistics and that uh, and that the numbers, um, you know, did know what they were talking about. And um, I think that team might uh, be looked on differently if they if it happened now, because um you know, it, it, they were um, sort of dominant statistically all year, even though they didn't have the talent of John Wall and Boogie Cousins that uh, Kentucky did. Well, the thing that's fascinating to me, Ben, is that that team fits into Duke's mythology and self-conception so much more than this one does. The mythology of floor slapping and hustle and we're smarter grit. than everyone and grit. we're... Don't forget grit. And we're, we're <laughs> grittier than everyone. But that this transition kind of happens seamlessly and not with... That I've noticed, I mean, maybe if you're a closer follower of Coach K's rhetoric, like it, it doesn't seem like his views or the way that he talks about his team have have evolved. Or his views about college basketball generally. He hasn't morphed into Calipari, right? He's not out there banging the drum that I'm doing everything I can to get these guys ready for the NBA and everything else is secondary. Coach K wants to win the NCAA championship. <laughs> well, and, and when Zion Williamson's name comes up in the FBI trial in relation to Kansas and, you know, you know, people talking about giving him money. Coach K is like, oh, well, like he was extensively vetted and like obviously not going to countenance any suggestion that he got money to come to Duke. But Ben, am I missing something? Has there been like a rhetorical shift uh, with Shashevsky that's acknowledged the fact that his program has gone in this totally different direction? I don't think so. I'm, I, I, um, uh, he said something interesting a couple of weeks ago that he said he doesn't think that um, Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett and any, any of these guys now are all that different from like Johnny Dawkins or Christian Leitner or guys he had in the 80s and 90s. If, if those guys, if, if the norm back then were for players to leave college after one year, they would have left college after one year, um, which I hadn't really thought about before and thought was kind of interesting. And the other thing about Krzyzewski is that having Duke having freshmen one-and-dones who are pretty good and might win a national championship – in their one year before going to the NBA is actually not all that new anymore. They won the 2015 national championship mm -hmm. with three freshmen who left right away and one freshman who turned into Grayson Allen. Right. So this is something <laughs> that, um, has it, it, you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, this is, uh, that freshman team on steroids, obviously. Um, but they've had success with it before. Not and literally, it's, we hope. Yeah, how dare you suggest that Zion Williamson is on steroids? Or anyone at Duke is on steroids. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and so, so um, you know, we've, we've, had this we've been having this conversation now for a decade and, and almost, you know, five years since they've uh, actually won a national championship like this. So now that the uh, NBA big boards seem to have been readjusted on the fly, we're going to put Zion at number one. Sorry, R.J. Barrett. Um, there's been some talk already of like the Cavs or whoever tanking to get him, but the NBA lottery rules have changed. And so 
um, Kevin Pelton did a thing that shows like it's actually not super advantageous to be in like number one versus number two versus number three slot. So we might not, Stefan, get to see any like amazing tanking this year. Oh, but you still want to race to the bottom. I mean, there are multiple teams with the opportunity to just throw it in right now. Right. Well, the odds are just pretty flat. So once you like get to roughly the bottom, you don't need to go like below the bottom. Right. But I want to make sure I get to the bottom. If I'm the Knicks or the Wizards or the Cavs or the Suns, I want to make sure that I'm locked in at the bottom. Right, Ben? Yes. And if you are the Knicks, you are looking at a potential next season with Chris Dapps, Porzingis, Kevin Durant, and Zion Williamson. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to NBA and NFL games becoming more like video games, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, we're going to chat with our guest, the fabulous baseball writer Rob Nyer about his book Powerball, which tells the story of the modern game via a recounting of a single game between the Houston Astros and the Oakland A's. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Slate.com slash plus is where you sign up. On Sunday, Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes threw his NFL-leading 31st touchdown pass of the season. The recipient of the pass, Tyreek Hill, said after the game, that's something I do on Madden. That's crazy. Hill was righter than he might have realized. Today's pass-happy, high-scoring NFL mimics the way people have been playing the Madden video game for years. Same story in the NBA, where the game on the court looks a lot like NBA Jam circa 1995. Ben, you and your colleague Andrew Beaton, one-time tournament Scrabble player, by the way, you guys wrote about the video gamification of the NBA and the NFL, and the stats back this up. Scoring is the obvious one. In the NFL, teams are scoring an average average of 24 points per game, the most ever so far this season. And in the NBA, they're averaging 111 points per game, the highest since 1970-71. Where more specifically, Ben, do we see this correlation between video games and real life? I think it's in the way that the games are being played, right? So it's the strategies of the NFL and the NBA. In the NBA, that means taking smarter shots and having a more intelligent shot distribution, which means taking three-pointers uh, and, and, and taking layups and dunks and, and, and sort of seeking those shots out while playing faster. So on any given NBA Jam machine in the summer of 1993, when the game came out, Mark Turmel, the creator of the game, says that between 50 and 52% of total points in a game came from three-pointers. Now, at the time, that number in the actual real-life NBA was 8%. So clearly, there was something odd about the way that people were playing NBA Jam that had no basis in reality. Now, NBA Jam wasn't a very realistic game. In fact, it was like beloved because it was so absurd. Um, but real life is kind of caught up to NBA Jam. And the same thing has happened in the NFL. If you played Madden, the chances are you 
passed the ball more than you ran the ball. You were more aggressive on fourth down and you actually thought that, you know, fourth and two on the 40, let's go for this because there was something intuitive about that strategy, something that made sense to all these people who were playing on their couches at home. What has become clear, partly aided by rules changes in both sports, is that it kind of makes the, the intuitive strategy that people were using in video games all along is what now makes sense in real life, too. Yeah, I was going to bring up the conscious rule changes that seem to um, have preceded these scoring explosions in both games. In the NFL, just much more pass-friendly rules in terms of um, you know contact and the secondary being called a lot more closely. It's just really, really difficult to defend the pass. And then in the NBA, similarly, freedom of movement on the court um, with the decline of hand-checking or any sort of contact on the defensive end and that being penalized more regularly. Um, I'm wondering uh, if you think that these changes were consciously designed with younger fans in mind as a way to, um, you know, increase viewership and just to have a, a game that's more exciting and maybe like re- resembled more the fake version of the game that was more enticing and exciting than the real one. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt, right? I mean, I know the NBA wants uh, a better product on the court, and a better product means more entertaining, more exciting. And I think it is one of sort of the happy coincidences of the development of the modern NFL and NBA that um, rules changes and what turned out to be the smartest ways to play were pretty exciting. Whereas you have a sport like baseball where, you know, mathematically the best way to play is to strike the, try to strike the other guy out and try to hit a home run. And that turns out to be not that exciting for a viewer. There's a lot of dead time in a way that there isn't in uh, basketball and football. Right. It's that games are also more fun to play this way. They're more fun for management in terms of figuring out these optimal strategies and finding players that can execute them. And not for nothing, it's more fun for players to play the games this way. NFL players in particular who are under the thumb of coaches more than in any other sport um, who have lamented for decades the lack of creative expression that's available to them um, and passing and leaping and catching and trying to defend that, that's the most creative part of football. And similarly in basketball, finding open space, launching long shots, um, those are the most balletic and interesting parts of the game to watch. So fans, it turns out, were ahead of the leagues in sort of sussing out that, hey, it's more fun to play Madden this way. And then the leagues realize, hey, it's more fun to watch and to allow our players to do this, too. So a thing that we should talk about is whether playing quarterback in the NFL is too easy now. Two-thirds of uh, quarterbacks in the league had a passer rating above 100 this week. That includes Matt Barkley, who came off the street to replace Nathan Peterman. Go figure that a guy off the street would be better than Nathan Peterman. He was not on any team, starts for the Bills, and has 117 passer rating. Drew Brees was 22 of 25 for 265 yards and three touchdowns and no interceptions. And that was arguably the fourth best performance by an NFL quarterback this week. Uh, Ben Roethlisberger, Baker Mayfield, 
and Mitch Trubisky were all uh, all had stat lines that were better than that. Is there a point at which the games are so offense friendly that either they cease to be as entertaining or um, they cease to be challenging enough? Or is, is there like a, a possibility that we could be getting like too video game like in terms of what these numbers are? Well, I guess the question I would ask you guys is, is there anyone who is not uh, employed to help play defense in the NFL that is upset about these changes in the NFL? I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure that, you know, look, there are people employed to, to make defenses better in the NFL that are just struggling to do it because the rules have tilted so far in favor of offenses. But I'm not sure that NFL management or network executives give a shit. So good luck, defensive coordinators. Well, I mean, and that's I... true. But that's true in the NBA, too. I mean, the, the, the advantage in the NBA has tilted so far in favor of the offense that there doesn't really seem to be a good defensive tactic other than switching just as, uh, as, as sort of like a neutralizing effect that can, that can switch the game the other way. I mean, this was, you know, we, we saw in, uh, in the 2000s that like Tom Thibodeau's defenses really changed the league. And now we're at the point when Tom Thibodeau might be out of a job by the end of the season. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I mean, what would the argument be? The argument would be that in order for us to see and appreciate greatness that there needs to be some sort of Balance. contrast yeah. and that with like Mitchell when Mitchell Trubisky and Baker Mayfield and Matt Barkley are looking like Hall of Famers then really what is a Hall of Famer like that's been an issue in the NBA this year right is that like the numbers from a historical standpoint are kind of meaningless just because averaging 20 points doesn't mean what it did even last year a couple of years before because teams are all playing so much faster I don't think that that's necessarily a problem. I don't think we need to like concern troll that. But I do wonder if at a certain point, um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think it like necessarily makes it less enjoyable to watch on a game to game basis. It is just weird. It's like fundamentally weird and you like don't even trust what you're seeing and what it like, what does it even mean to be good anymore? (laughs) I mean, maybe the answer is to get a bunch of top Madden gamers together and tell them to play defense better and see how they'll (laughs) respond. Um, Because, you know, your story kind of raises this chicken and egg question. Did the video games anticipate the way sports would evolve over the last couple of decades? Or did the sports evolve because of the video games? And that may sound absurd because I can't imagine that, you know, NFL executives or NBA executives were playing Madden or like, you know, asking EA Sports for their statistical breakdowns, though maybe they were, Ben. I mean, did you guys find any evidence that there is a a better correlation and maybe that might point to the future of both these games and the leagues themselves? I wish we had. I mean, we, we were sort of casting around for like some NBA or NFL general manager who like was secretly playing video games on the side and just decided to scrap his entire strategy and just do what he was doing on Xbox. Cause that would have been, God, what an amazing story that would have been. <laughs> I, I think, I think it's more, um, I, I just think That's there the are all these Steven guys. Glass would have written. Yeah. <laughs> it's the new hack heaven. Um, I, I, I just think that there are, are all of these guys in both leagues now who spent their formative years playing video games in some way. And I just think it's sort of subconsciously 
um, shapes them. I mean, Steph Curry grew up playing NBA Jam, and it was not weird for him to shoot three-pointers. Now, that is not why Steph Curry is the greatest three-point shooter ever, but I don't think it really hurts him either. So the place where I want to take this conversation is around social norms. And I feel like the NBA, just to um, take, just to put the NFL aside for a second, we would be shooting more three-pointers, the, the royal way. Uh, there would be more three-pointers in the league. I feel like if, they're just, if it just doesn't somehow feel wrong, like I feel like there's still some constraint here. And we did actually talk about this in our NFL conversation about how teams would go for two more and would go for it on fourth down even more than they do now, even though we moved in that direction, if it just didn't still feel wrong. And it, like we're, we're moving in that direction and it moves slowly. But I feel like that concept um, is super prevalent in video games too. So John Boyce did this Breaking Madden series where he just made the games like do these like incredibly weird and fucked up things. And I think all of us who've played sports video games, you figure out a way, whether it's like Bo Jackson and Tech Mobile or something else, like some glitch in the game and something that you can exploit that it just like violates the social contract of the game. And the way that I feel like that applies is with somebody like Steph Curry. There was a piece in 538 uh, in 2015 that Benjamin Morris did about how if you just look at it like coldly and rationally, Steph Curry should like shoot every time. Um, And that's just not going to happen because these are like humans and you need to make sure that like Draymond and Clay are happy and you don't want to like break the the bonds of the team by just having Steph shoot like 83 pointers a game but that i think is the is the place where we haven't yet gone and i wonder if there is going to be a team in one of these sports at one point that does the like run bo jackson every time or have Steph shoot every time offense like that would be the like real mind blowing moment when these sports would actually become like video games but I think before we get there, you have to hit um, the upper extreme of like the optimal strategy. And I think there are a lot of smart people in the NBA who think that for all of the changes that the league has seen over the last five years, we're still not even there yet. Right. Like in 2009, um, uh, John Hollinger wrote a piece for ESPN that said, like, NBA teams should shoot more threes. If you look at the statistic that correlates most with winning percentage, it's just straight shooting more threes. And yet at that point, Three-pointers plateaued for the next five years, and nothing happened. Not long afterwards, Tom Haberstroh wrote a piece for ESPN saying Steph Curry should shoot 10 threes a game, and that would be the best thing that the Warriors could do. And it still took him a couple years to get there. Now, last year, the Rockets were the first team ever to shoot more three-pointers than two-pointers, and the Rockets were pretty good last year. I mean, they had one of the best offenses ever. And part of that was because of their personnel, but part of it is because of the simple math that three is still worth more than two. So, you know, is there ever going to be a team that shoots like 80% of its shots from threes? I don't know if that is like the right equilibrium, but I think that we're going to start getting closer to 80% and 30%, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I think the Warriors or the team, you saw this when Clay Thompson made the record 14 threes the other week. They're the team that like, because they're so much better than everyone else and they're just like trying to like like beat the mini boss and in, in these regular season games where they're just like doing these kind of ridiculous in-game challenges like they'll do stuff like that and I could see a game where you know Clay if he's hot and the Nets are like 
literally catching fire and the announcer says he's on fire. Like I could see a game where like Clay would shoot 53s or something just for like because the Warriors are, are, you know, going for shits and giggles. But you saw in that in that game that like these records, like the 14 threes in a game, like there is no reason that the record should be 14 threes versus 20 or 25. It's just because of like politeness and (laughs) that it's just like that's not how the game is played. But I'm just like I'm always fascinated to see these like constraints kind of fall away and where they don't fall so away. So you really want the Warriors basically to behave like Boyce behaved when he broke Madden. You want them to do and as a thought experiment, you know, sure. And as a game experiment, that would be amazing to see. You know, have them only shoot three point shots. They'd still win, obviously. Yeah, but I mean so I, why not? I just think that it's perceived as disrespectful. Yeah. It's perceived as um you know, not in in keeping with like tradition or ethics or whatever you you want to call it, running up the score. But given that the Warriors are going to you know make the finals, and the point of professional sports is to entertain us and to be an entertainment product, if that would like keep them interested, it would certainly keep us interested as fans. I just think there's not anything wrong with it. It's just like we need to convince them or they need to convince themselves that it's like, okay to like fuck around and like do weird stuff. I actually think though, that the threat of like humiliating the other team running up the score is more of an inhibition to them as than um, like strategic experimentation, right? Like I think the problem when Steph Curry goes off or when clay has 14 threes and three quarters or 60 points in 29 minutes is that the odds are if one of them has done that, the warriors are probably going to be up 30 and they're just not going to play the fourth quarter. So like, I, I think that that, um, th- well, that's like why you idea- allow the other team to score, Ben, like, come on. Oh, you right. gotta, you gotta, you gotta be, uh, be so smart. No, like- to, to break the NBA record on offense and then also let the other team score so that Steph Curry and Clay Thompson can play the fourth quarter. Well, that's how Kobe scored 81 points against the, the Raptors is it was a reasonably close game. You think Kobe was playing like super tight defense? <laughs> Kobe also told everyone on the team that they weren't allowed to play super tight defense either. That's probably true. Ben Cohen is a sports writer for the Wall Street Journal. Ben, two segments. Thank you for uh, for doing that. Thank you for having me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Last week, the legendary writer and thinker and baseball brain Bill James tweeted that it's asinine to say that players making only a few million a year are underpaid, a sentiment he followed with, if the players all retired tomorrow, we would replace them, the game would go on, in three years it would make no difference whatsoever, the players are not the game any more than the beer vendors are. Well, I am not privy to what beer vendors thought of that tweet. Baseball players were not pleased. Justin Verlander of the Astros replied, wonder if the Red Sox, that being the team James has consulted for for more than a decade, wonder if the Red Sox win the World Series with a replacement player for Mookie Betts or J.D. Martinez or David Price or Xander Bogarts 
or Jackie Bradley Jr., or Chris Sale, or Rick Porcello, or Andrew Benintendi, or Raphael Devers, or Craig Kimbrell. The new uh, Twitter character limit was uh, Justin Verlander's friend there. Joining us now to discuss this contretemps is Rob Nyer, a great writer and thinker and baseball brain himself, who got his start as Bill James's assistant and who co-wrote a book with him, The Nyer James Guide to Pitchers. His latest book is Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game, which we'll be discussing in our bonus segment in just a little bit. Welcome to the show, Rob. Thank you for having me. So before we get going, I should say that Bill James has written pieces for me. Uh, We've had him on the podcast. He did decline to come on the show this week. I also want to say, Rob, that I don't want you to have to answer for Bill James's internet crimes. That is not why you're here, (laughs) but I think you are well-positioned to explain to us what you think motivated his comments as somebody who knows his work maybe better than anyone, and also what you make of the responses to what he said. You know, the idea that the, the union would have to put out an official statement uh, struck me as preposterous. And then, of course, the Red Sox uh, themselves followed the organization. Um, it just all seemed blown wildly out of proportion. Now, it's it's I suppose I would say that because, yes, I, I, I do have a long relationship with Bill and uh, I literally owe in my entire career to Bill. Um, and also, maybe I shouldn't be trusted because I sort of I basically agree with Bill's sentiments. Now, I would not have expressed them exactly as Bill did. And we disagree about a fair number of things, um, maybe not in baseball, but in life. And I write about these things in, in, in my book. Um, not so starkly, perhaps, as Bill did. And that's sort of, and that's the nature of Twitter, I suppose. Bill, Bill doesn't do those long, rambling, multi-tweet threads. He just fires one off, and that's it. So there is no context. I wonder if anybody's, if he's ever considered doing the, the long thread, because um, seems to me that often when he gets into a little a bit of trouble on Twitter, it's because it's one tweet with no surrounding context, and maybe he should try the other way. The problem... Rob, that I see in this exchange last week and the reaction to it was that Bill's original comments, and I'm not sure what prompted them, and like you say, sometimes nothing prompts Bill's tweets, he just tweets, um, were that that on their face they are banal. The, the, the observations were twofold. One, players make too much, at least this is how they could be distilled, and two, players are disposable. And I couldn't quite figure out what conversation this was advancing. What <laughs> hidden concept about baseball was this trying to articulate? I mean, in one of the tweets that was deleted, Bill said, as, as you referenced, Josh, that marginal players aren't worth $3 million. And I think Lance Lynn was mentioned in a tweet that he was not worth $12 million because of how he performed last season. I mean, players are worth what the market determines they're worth, unless the market is rigged which the players, in fact, believe the market may have been rigged last year. So I, I just don't quite see what Bill was trying to get at. I mean, something obviously triggered this. But ultimately, these are not sort of one-off statements that are going to get you anywhere. No, you're, you're right. Um, I, I wouldn't um, argue that Bill is is a, a particularly elucidating on Twitter. Um, there did seem to be a sentiment last winter that – some number of players deserved a great deal more money than they wound up getting. And I would agree with you that their players are basically worth what the market will bear, at least by one definition. Um, But the notion that, for example, uh, 
Jake Arrieta was worth far more than he wound up getting from the Phillies, um, or at least worth far more than what people thought he might wind up getting when he did sign. I don't. I think that's a nonsensical argument. I do think that the that the players are worth what the market will bear. Now there are artificial influences on that minimum wage, minimum, minimum salaries, things like that. Of course, the minimum salary in Major League Baseball is is quite low. Um, I would argue that minor league baseball players are underpaid, but I don't think major league baseball players are underpaid, any of them. Apparently, this began from a conversation about owner suppressing contracts, just what, what mm-hmm. I mentioned, what we were talking about, right. and that Bill questioned the idea that a $3 million baseball player could be considered underpaid. Well, the bigger right, issue. Exactly. And and I would agree with him. Um, um, I, I feel a great deal more sympathy for a minor leaguer in AAA making twenty-five dollars or $35,000 uh, a year than any major leaguer making $3 million. Well, it depends on what the terms of the debate are, right? I mean, if we're pitting players against owners in terms of who, quote unquote, deserves money, I think that a lot of us would side with the players, um, yes. given that um, if we're arguing about who is the game or who isn't the game, I think the players are more the game than the owners of, of the teams, despite what, um, you know, you might, who might get the World Series trophy first, uh, you know, when when the season is over. But I think the bigger picture here, and this is something I'd be curious to hear you speak on, Rob, is just that James is operating on kind of a higher plane here, not like a higher moral plane, but like he's he's like a philosopher. And he's talking about um, kind of in the biggest possible sense of things, like what is baseball, which is not a conversation that I think the the players like Justin Verlander or folks like Tony Clark, they're operating in like the real world of, you know, contracts and how, well, and, how self-interest. Spe- and self-interest and how specific players are treated. They're not like up for some sort of like existential know, conversation about what baseball is with a capital B. Well, that, that's exactly right. Uh, that, that's really what it comes down to. Bill is taking a historical look, both looking backward and looking forward. Uh, and it is, he's, I, I think that the, the particular tweet um, that was most inflammatory from the player side was, was the one saying that, that uh, you could re- replace every player in baseball or if every player, if every baseball player, major leaguer disappeared today, uh, baseball would be would would recover within three years. I think, roughly, is what Bill said. Yeah. Uh, and look, I, if if I had written that, and I would have written something like that if it had come up, I wouldn't. I probably wouldn't have said three years. I might have said four or five years, or uh, three eventually, and a half years. I would have three said and a half something. Years. <laughs> Right. I would have said but, something. But why greater say than anything? Three. I mean, this is sort of, again, this is a banal observation masquerading as a deep thought. Yes, the game of baseball will continue. If there were no major leagues, children would still play baseball. Someone would play baseball. I mean, the, the players have always been the game. And for 100 years, management tried to tell the public and operate it as if the players didn't matter. And for the last 40 years, the players finally gained the leverage that they were denied for so long. So I, I don't quite get like I still I still come back to what's the point of this? Like, yeah, that's going to get misinterpreted. Right. If you're going to say 
something the way that James articulated it. It is obviously going to get misinterpreted. Players obviously are going to get the hair up on their necks because it does sound as if you're saying, screw the current players who are making all of these millions of dollars. They could be replaced and the game would go on and fans wouldn't care. It was just so obvious that that's how that would be misinterpreted. And of course, when someone writes a tweet, they're not thinking, how is everybody going to respond? James was just sort of pumping out a thought bubble. That's right. Uh, I I would say that if I had read that tweet when it first appeared, it would not have occurred to me that Tony Clark was going to fire off a press release a few hours later or that the Red Sox would fire would would, would do the same. Um, so I think when when you say that it's obvious that people would respond that way, um, I, either you're speaking with with the sure. benefit of hindsight, hindsight or you're just a little bit wiser than Bill or I might be in these matters. And you probably are. I doubt um, it. I don't think I've, I've certainly not gotten a great deal of credit for being uh, sensitive to things like this over the years. And, and, and neither has Bill. Um, it is also true that Bill has always written things that were controversial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whether he did that on purpose or not, I, I think you, well, I'm sure he said at times that he has done it on purpose because uh, be, because he wanted people to pay attention. He wanted people to read. Um, if you if you take away the controversial or inflammatory or insulting things that Bill wrote in the early 1980s, I don't think we know who Bill James is. That was part of what made Bill Bill. He wasn't afraid to upset people. I don't think he operates that way, at least purposely. Now, he doesn't need to. What would be the point? Um so, but it isn't, it might, I, I do think it's somewhat habitual to just be opinionated. As, as I think you were alluding to, Rob, this is kind of performative outrage. Like, I don't think Tony Clark and Justin Verlander actually cared <laughs> about this. It's just like a thing to get mad about. But, you know, I was looking at, you know, what Bill's response was to this. He talked to Tyler Kepner a bit in the New York Times, and he sent some, some follow-up thoughts on his Twitter account. And the thing that seemed to get to Bill, which I found was fascinating, is that someone pointed out to him, like, you're the establishment now. (laughs) And Bill has always thought of himself, and rightly so, for the majority of his career as an outsider. I was looking back at Ben McGrath's profile of James from The New Yorker from 2003, which was just right when he was getting started with the Red Sox. And this, you know, was a story that has the legend of him as the night watchman and the, you know, Stokely Van Camp uh, pork uh, and beans factory and kind of the lonely outsider with his crazy ideas about relief pitching. Um, And 15 years later, you know, a bunch of World Series rings later, a bunch of front office kind of turnovers later with Bill James acolytes, you know, in the game. He is somebody who's words mean something different and carry a different kind of weight. And I just can't imagine that he perceives himself any differently. Despite that, he still sees himself as the same person. Well, and he replied to the person that you you, you alluded to there, Josh. Uh, Bill said on Twitter, I don't think of myself as the establishment or part of the establishment, but I do think that this controversy has arisen because yesterday's comments were perceived in that way. And it is really hard, Rob, to understand how Bill has over the years 
and you can explain this to us, I think, how he has adjusted to being the outsider with these wacky ideas at the time to someone whose influence in the game was so tremendous that he was sought out to deliver advice to front offices for the better part of two decades now. Well, I, I haven't spent enough time with Bill to know how he, he's adjusted, but I do think he's basically the same person that he was when I uh, met him in 1988. Um, exactly, almost exactly 30 years ago, actually, was when when um, I had my job interview with Bill. Um, we, I think, most of us, almost all of us. Uh, we have a difficult time escaping our youth, our self images from when we were teenagers or, or prior to having any professional success. Uh, and I think Bill is, is not unlike the rest of us in that way. Um, so sure. Thinking of himself as, as the establishment, I wouldn't expect Bill to do that. Uh, even as he appears in, or his name, I guess his picture appeared in, you know, the Moneyball movie and he's done all these things and has all these World Series rings. Um, he still seems to me basically the same person. Now, he has softened over the years um, and um, he's much easier to talk to than he, now than he was when I met him on a personal level. Um, I think he's changed quite a, quite a bit, um, mellowed and uh, just become easier to, to be around. Um, but I think intellectually... Uh, and emotionally, he's still basically the same person that he was b- before anybody had ever heard of him. Rob, another thing that um, I think is going on here is that uh, sports writing has gotten a lot more liberal um, in the last decade or two. I would say. What do you what would you say, Stephen? I'd say more than more than the last couple decades. Yeah, and Bill James is not somebody who uh, has really gone. With the herd there, like on his Twitter account, along with these, uh, you know, various things that we've mentioned already, he's having a conversation with somebody about vote fraud and how it's ridiculous to say that vote fraud doesn't exist because people cheat on their taxes and cheat on everything else. So to make the suggestion that vote fraud is real kind of makes me question James in a way that I wouldn't um, on his baseball opinions. And so... I wonder, you're somebody who, if, you know, I follow you on Twitter, like a lot of what you write is just like extremely like liberal political um, stuff. Um, And so I'm wondering how you perceive Bill's politics, whether any of that is a factor here and how he like engages with uh, the public today and how he feels about, uh, you know, kind of where he sits in the media ecosystem right now. Well, I think that Bill is has always been and remains a contrarian at heart, um, and that's, maybe that's not the right word. I think he in, I think he naturally winds up poking holes in the arguments of people with whom he basically agrees. Um, you know, the, it's, I noticed the voter fraud thing the other day too, and I I, I see your point. Exactly. Uh, the facts are clear, but it is Bill is also, I think, technically correct when he says that, of course, there's voter fraud fraud. Uh, let me give you an example. Here in Oregon, we basically have where I live, we have essentially no voter fraud that anyone's ever been able to track. 
we, we use a mail-in ballot system. Every single ballot, they, they mail you your ballot, and then you mail it back, or you drop it in a box. There are no polling stations. There are places you can drop your ballot. Um, and the way that you verify your identity is by living at a certain address and by signing your ballot. And that has to match, at least reasonably, uh, what you've submitted when you when you registered. Now, it would be foolish to think that somewhere along the line, someone hasn't voted for their for a spouse or someone else living in their home and forged their signature. And it and it was counted. Of course, that's happened. So to suggest there's no voter fraud would be silly, which is what Bill said, literally. But obviously, it isn't a huge problem. Um, it, mathematically, we, we could, it's, it's clear that elections aren't being thrown in Oregon by people signing ballots that aren't their own. Um, Bill could have clarified that. He chose not to. Well, what he said also was that he expected that the percentage might be as high as 20 percent. He said 10 to 20 percent was his estimate. No, no he, said, he said 10 to 20 percent of people cheat on something. He, well, which, which what of he said was right 10, 10 to 20 percent of people cheat like crazy in fantasy leagues. It's not credible to suggest that a comparable percentage would not cheat in something that people care so much about voting. Um, you know, well, that's, again, that's if you, clearly ridiculous. Right. <laughs> I mean, they clearly ridiculous. Get away with it, but it's not clear that they could get away with it. Yeah. And I mean... I mean, ultimately, you know, Bill James's Twitter feed is reads like an old conservative guy. You know, he talked <laughs> about triple bigotry against old white men. And his daughter replied, congratulations to my dad on his new position as a New York Times opinion columnist, which is pretty yes. funny. Um, yep. So I think that, you know, not take I think the Boston Red Sox had to respond because he is perceived as an employee of that organization. So, yes, if you are going to be a, an employee of the Boston Red Sox and a representative of Major League Baseball management, you have to own up your to your opinions on Twitter. And for Bill to, to argue that you know, I was misinterpreted and I wasn't trying to say these things is OK, but I don't think realistic. I don't think that even if it's performative response on the part of the players and on the part of the union – I think it was a fair response because, yeah, these arguments, particularly existential ones, are not the best, you know, are not best conducted in a, in a forum like Twitter. But again, I don't know how much they advance about baseball. I'd like to read and I love reading what Bill James thinks about baseball. This is not a thought that particularly helped me understand <laughs> baseball any well, better. The voter fraud thing, it's like interesting because you could argue and I would be curious what Bill's counter to this was that it's it's damaging to put that idea out into the world, even as an idea. Like there's nothing that Bill could say about baseball that's like actually matters. I think mm -hmm. that will, uh, you know, I don't mean it literally that way, but it's not going to like hurt anyone or like damage anyone if Bill says that players could be replaced within three years. Like we can have a debate about it. We can say that oh, it's like, you know, maybe you shouldn't have said it that way. But like fundamentally, I think it's probably all to the good that somebody's out there like throwing bombs and making people upset in the realm of baseball. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to like something like voter fraud, where it's used as ammunition for people to, um, you know, as we're seeing in suppress, right now in Georgia, you know, suppress voter registration and, and all of that stuff. I think that having somebody out there being like, I'm just asking questions is like not actually useful. So that's that's the distinction I would draw. Well, I, and I agree. I'm on your I'm completely on your side um, uh, on this one. And uh, I, I'm I am personally dismayed when Bill writes 
uh, tweets things like that because I, I agree. I, I don't think it's helpful. I don't think it'd, I think ultimately what Bill is trying to do, whether he thinks about it this way or not, I don't know, but he's trying to, uh, he wants people to look at the facts of the cases, the individual cases and, um, and think about them and maybe in ways that they haven't been thinking about them, get out of whatever mindset they're in. And I, I respect that. Um, and I, I, I try to do the same thing sometimes. And I usually when Bill writes something like that, I sort of see the I see the kernel of truth in there, whether it's triple bigotry, which, of course, exists on some level and is and is regrettable. And and I think he's yes, of course, there is voter fraud somewhere. We should be looking out for it rationally. And people are. Um, but I would agree with you. I, I don't think ultimately that the way Bill expresses these things is helpful. And and uh, and I wish he if I had my choice, he wouldn't do it. But it's not my choice. Rob Nyer's latest book is Powerball, Anatomy of a Modern Baseball Game. Rob, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, you bet. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And now it is time for After Balls. Josh, we uh, talked about how great a name Zion is. We did. He would be the first Zion in the NBA. No previous Zions in the NBA. No Zions in in uh, in Major League Baseball, but one Zion in the NFL. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Zion McKinney. He was a wide receiver out of South Carolina. He played one season for the Washington team. Ten games, no receptions, two kick returns for 31 yards, 17 yards, one fumble recovery, war number 84. Um, scored a touchdown in training camp in an exhibition game. Good for that guy. In 1981. He was the only wide receiver rookie to make the 1980 team with a guy named Art Monk. Art Monk had a longer career in the NFL than Zion McKinney. Good guy. Uh, Dwayne Wade has a kid named Zion. So Zion Williamson is going to be just ahead of him. Stefan, what is your Zion McKinney? The World Chess Championship is underway in London. It's 27-year-old defending champ and eye candy Magnus Carlsen of Norway against 26-year-old regular guy who watches Game of Thrones, Fabiano Caruana of the United States. 12 games, one point for a win, half a point for a draw. First player to six and a half points wins. Could last until the end of the month. The first two games ended in draws, so one point apiece. Game three was on Monday as we were recording this podcast. Previewing the match, the New York Times wrote in a headline, Searching for the next Bobby Fischer, the U.S. finds Fabi. iChess.net asked, is Fabiano Caruana the next Bobby Fischer? ESPN answered, he's being called the next Bobby Fischer. The Wall Street Journal, savvy about the media's ways, sighed. This is how it goes in chess. Whenever a young American player makes waves on the international stage, the press is quick to call him the next Bobby Fischer. But in this case, the comparison may hold. The first mention that I found of the phrase, the next Bobby Fischer, is from September 20th, 1972, 19 days after Boris Spassky resigned in Reykjavik to give Fischer the world title. 
Tennis everyone, the Fort Lauderdale Sun Sentinel wrote. You betcha, because everyone who isn't running out these days to pick up a chess set and become the next Bobby Fischer is grabbing a racket and balls to emulate Billie Jean King and Rod Laver. But it didn't take long for the next Bobby Fischer to settle in as a descriptive for any rising chess star. Some observers, said one report in October 1972, feel the 29-year-old Jude Acers may be the next Bobby Fischer. He wasn't, but Acers, known for wearing a red beret and playing passersby for money on the street in New Orleans, has made a life in chess. New Yorker 5 may be next Bobby Fischer. The Wilmington, Delaware News Journal reported in December 1972 about Robert Ladon of New York, who started playing during the Fisher-Spassky match and within a few weeks had star coaches at the Manhattan Marshall Chess Club. The publicity landed Ladon on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. He played Spassky as part of an exhibition in New York in 1974. I couldn't find much more about Ladon's chess career. Other next Bobby Fishers, however, did rise in the ranks. In May 1976, the New York Times said that 13-year-old Michael Wilder of Princeton, New Jersey, may be the next Bobby Fisher. Wilder won the U.S. championship in 1988, graduated from Yale, and then went to law school and effectively retired from chess. Today, he's a partner at a D.C. law firm and specializes in tax issues. Wilder had competition from 12-year-old Joel Benjamin, who fellow players and coaches say may be the next Bobby Fischer, the Hartford Current reported in 1976. Benjamin became the youngest U.S. chess master. Now he's a grandmaster and a chess professional. Yasser Sarawan was a TNBF in 1982, but there were doubts. Will he become the next Bobby Fischer, a chess columnist wrote, or is he too busy living it up to make it to the top? Sarawan, the chess columnist, wrote, skis, surfs, plays backgammon, ping pong, and pool, and is, quote, a bon vivant in tailor-made clothes and a dancer till dawn in discos. He became a four-time U.S. champ and grandmaster and is commenting on the current match. Could John Valoria be the next Bobby Fischer? The Journal News of White Plains, New York, asked in 1989 of a 10-year-old who would win two youth titles. He could not though Valoria was a competitive Scrabble player for a while. Is he the next Bobby Fischer? The Wall Street Journal's Roger Lowenstein asked of 12-year-old Jorge Zamora in 1991. 23 years later, the Boston Globe asked Zamora, now Jorge Samur Hasbun, whether his pupil, 13-year-old Sam Servian, could be the next Bobby Fischer. Samur Hasbun played along. Absolutely, of course he can. In 2005, the Times profiled 17-year-old Haraku Nakamura. He could be the next Bobby Fischer without the quirks. Seven years later, NPR asked of Nakamura, next Bobby Fischer. In 2013, the Toronto Globe and Mail headlined a story about nine-year-old Carissa Yip, the next Bobby Fischer, which, given her gender, would have been something. Yip is the current U.S. girls' junior champion. The current U.S. boys' junior champion is Wander Leong, the next Bobby Fischer from Wisconsin. The online magazine Ozzy asked about him in 2015. There are dozens more names, some of whom became highly ranked players. Gata Kamsky, Jeff Sarwer, Steven Zirk, Ray Robson, and dozens more lines and headlines in local stories about chess clubs. Brownsville may be source for next Bobby Fischer. There is a chance the next Bobby Fischer will be playing at the Canadian Youth Chess Championship. The next Bobby Fischer could come from an unlikely place the city's oldest elementary school on the outskirts of a Latin barrio. Ten-year-old chess wizard has all the right moves. Boy may be next to Bobby Fischer. Is Maitland boy to become next Bobby Fischer? Can sub-Saharan Africa produce the next Bobby Fischer? The search for the next Bobby Fischer may have ended 
with an 11-year-old boy in Hawaii. All of these mentions elide an important question. What exactly is the next Bobby Fischer? It's not a child prodigy because kids have surpassed Fischer's early ratings. Is it an American world champion? There hasn't been one since Fischer. Or is it an American chess celebrity? Or just a transcendent chess mind, regardless of nationality? If it's that, well, case closed. Because in 2007, a writer said that 16-year-old Magnus Carlsen has risen to the top ranks so fast that many consider him to be the next Bobby Fischer. Carlson has won three world titles since then. The next Bobby Fischer is actually all of those things and nothing. It's a shop-worn media trope fueled in part by the title of a book and movie based on a next Bobby Fischer in New York in the 1980s, a little kid named Josh Waitskin. It's an intentionally undefinable narrative, a convenient shorthand for elusive, incomprehensible genius, a glamorized reminiscence corrupted by nostalgia, an idea a ghost. Bobby Fischer was a tormented genius with a personality disorder and then a mentally ill, anti-Semitic paranoiac who praised 9-11 and spent his final years abroad avoiding deportation before dying in Iceland. 46 years after he beat Spassky, Bobby Fischer remains the name in chess that people who don't know chess do know. Even if Fabiano Caruana wins the world championship, people will keep asking if someone is the next Bobby Fischer, but there won't ever be a next Bobby Fischer, and thank God for that. Josh, what's your Zion McKinney? According to ESPN's Adam Schefter, and he typically knows these things, Pittsburgh Steelers running back Le'Veon Bell is not expected to report to the team by Tuesday, which means he won't be eligible to play this season. If Le'Veon Bell, in fact, does report to the team by Tuesday, you can still listen to this afterball for entertainment purposes. Um, but let's uh, note that Bell had been holding out all season because the Steelers used their franchise tag to lock him into a one-year contract. Bell, who's 26 years old and already has 1,229 carries in five NFL seasons, wanted a long-term deal that would give him some security, given the wear and tear the running back position puts on one's body. Wear and tear is probably putting it a little bit nicely. We could substitute in regular beatings or ritual punishment or any number of other phrases. Um, anyway, by sitting out the season, Bell is giving up $14.5 million, which is the amount of the franchise tag for a running back. Uh, he's saving one year of quote-unquote wear and tear on the old uh, joints and limbs. I'm sure he's betting on getting a multi-year contract with a lot more than $14.5 million in guaranteed money. If the overall strategy here is to trade some short-term cash for long-term financial security, there's another approach that Bell could have taken and that approach is to take performance-enhancing drugs. Now, I would never recommend to the kids, there are a lot of kids out there listening to this podcast that look up to Stefan, uh, I would never recommend to the kids that they should take performance-enhancing drugs. Someone who is definitely not me, though, might present the case of New Orleans Saints running back Mark Ingram. Mark Ingram was suspended without pay for the first four games of the season for violating the NFL policy on performance-enhancing substances. Ingram has since come back. On Sunday, the 28-year-old running back had his best game of the year in the Saints' 51-14 win over the Bengals. Who dat? 
Uh, he rushed for 104 yards, and he caught a touchdown pass. The case against getting suspended for taking performance-enhancing drugs is that you have to miss four games for a first offense, and you lose four game checks, which can be a lot of money suspended without pay. That's not a good thing. Now, the case for the performance-enhancing drugs, speaking purely hypothetically, children, is as follows. As opposed to in baseball, where players take a reputational hit for even being rumored to take performance-enhancing drugs, nobody cares if football players do it. I do not recall hearing anyone say they were disappointed in Mark Ingram or dismayed by Mark Ingram's alleged behavior. Same with the Patriots' Julian Edelman or anyone else who got busted by the NFL's policy in the first game back. I think it was uh, on Sunday Night Football and Edelman came back. It's like, oh, we're so happy to have Julian Edelman back. Uh, no real like uh, clutching of pearls or clucking of tongues. Not a big deal. Number two, it's possible you won't get caught, which means you won't even lose any money. So just throwing it out there. Number three, if you do get caught, you, st- you get to rest your body, Le'Veon Bell style, and come back with your body full of performance-enhancing drugs, which will, at least if we believe the name, allegedly enhance your performance. Now, to be clear, Mark Ingram denies taking PEDs. He claimed that he tested positive for a substance that was not a performance-enhancing substance, nor an illegal substance, but a substance, in fact, permissible with the proper use exemption with the NFL. Now, we have no idea of knowing if this is true. Players and their agents just put out statements, and there's confidentiality, so the NFL doesn't actually say what he was found to have taken. So take that with a grain of HGH or whatever you want to take it with. Um, But Ingram does want a long-term contract. He said that publicly. Uh, And not having those four extra games of wear and tear on his body will not be the worst thing in the world when he is trying to get paid. So in conclusion, NFL players, definitely don't do what I'm not suggesting that you do. Say no to drugs, but if you say yes to drugs, then maybe it'll be a rational decision, one that someone who is not me might think it's logical for you to think about. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows, subscribe, reach out, send advice, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. Performance was always enhanced, but only naturally. And thanks for listening. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 